The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. There's not many churches meeting this Sunday, I would gander to say, that has a, uh, a man leading worship for them who would know the nuances and intricacy of salvation uh, in, a, in such a way that he could explain for us the, the difference of confessing to God as a father and God as a judge. And that is, it stirred my soul to hear that. And so I've, I'm just thankful and want to say publicly thank you to Sam for being uh, the type of man who loves Jesus and knows the gospel. And I'm thankful that we have a, a guy like Sam at the helm of our liturgy and worship. We are extremely blessed that this is the case for us at this church. Well, good morning. Last week in the Declare and Display series, which saddens me always, I really look forward to this series. We do it every year. I've said that already, and so has Hedger, and that's on purpose. Uh, it's not just a fill-in, you know, we, there's a month until we want to start the book of Philippians. What can we preach on for four weeks? That's not what we're doing here. This is a very intentional sermon series that, that we want to do every single year. We think it's that important. And like I said a couple weeks ago, we think it's important because as a people, you and I as individuals, we're prone to drift. We, we know that we have a calling, we know that we have an ultimate end, we know that we have a purpose, and yet we're prone to wander away from that left and right. And not only is that true for us as individuals, but it's true for us as a corporate body, as a church, Emmaus Church, we are prone to drift. We are a very, in, in most regards, a very healthy church who loves Jesus and is gospel-saturated and gospel-drenched, but we're prone to drift. And so we need to focus we need to be, to be realigned into what we've been called to do. We need to take time every year, four weeks, to say, why, why are we even doing this? Why are we coming here, meeting together? Why are we playing music? Why are we preaching? Why are we trying to do discipleship? Why are we doing community groups? Why are we doing any of this? Why are we going overseas in the first place? Any of it. What's it for? <clears throat> That's what the series is for. To help us focus on what we've been called to do. And what we've been called to do is to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. So we've marched through that. That's our vision statement. A mayor's church exists to see God glorified, number one, churches multiplied, number two, by declaring and displaying the gospel. So we're just marching straight through that. And we've done so for three weeks. For the very first week, we just went over the first two words. Emmaus exists. And Josh told the story of, of how we've seen the Lord's grace already in this year and a half to two years and bring nine people to move to Kansas City to plant this church into what we have today. And we talked about how the Lord's faithfulness has just been kind of the resounding theme of Emmaus Church over and over and over. We're broken, He's faithful. We're broken, He's faithful. And that's going to be our theme till we die. And then the second week, we talked about how the ultimate end of all that we do is the glory of God. <clears throat> We took a 30,000-foot view, basically walked through the biblical narrative and showed how the entire Bible is about the glory of God, and therefore we must be about the glory of God. We talked about how you and your favorite pet and your favorite aunt and the chair you sit in and your favorite restaurant all exist to bring God glory. All of it. And then the third week, last week, we talked about how, why and how we want to see churches multiplied. 
We want to see the gospel go forward in such a way that dead men are made alive, that lost people are found, that those who are unsaved will be saved, and we want to disciple them and teach them and gather them together so that they will form healthy New Testament-like churches all over the metroplex of Kansas City and all over the world. That's what we want to see. Disciples raised up out of nothing to form churches. And then today, we get to the last week by declaring and displaying the gospel. I would argue that, that, that the glory of God is the most important clause in our phrase, but this is the anchor of the mission statement. Here's why I say that, because, because the first three, they're, they're ends. Glorifying God and, and churches multiplying, those are ends that we're trying to get to, but declaring and displaying the gospel is the means by which we'll get there. If we want to see God glorified, we must Declare and display the gospel. If we want to see churches multiplied, we must declare and display the gospel. Even furthermore, listen, I think that that declaring and displaying the gospel is the part of our mission statement that justifies any of the other parts. Even in so much as, I might even offend some of you in this because I know you love Emmaus just the way I do. But listen, if we ever stop preaching the gospel, I hope our church stops existing. Honestly, I mean that. I know you think that's kind of weird for the pastor to say, but listen, if we're not preaching the gospel, we're not doing anything. If we're not declaring and displaying the gospel to ourselves, to other Christians, to non-believers, there's no purpose in us existing. New Testament churches, biblical churches, declare and display the gospel. So week one, doesn't matter if we're not declaring and displaying the gospel. Week two, God glorified. God's going to get His glory. He's going to. His holiness demands it. If you stop, the rocks are going to cry out His glory. The heavens are already, right now, declaring His glory. But listen, He is supremely glorified when the gospel of His murdered Son goes forward and people who are lost hear it, receive it, and see Him for how beautiful He is, turn their life and repent and come towards Him and are saved. He's supremely glorified in sinners becoming saints. Therefore, we will declare and display the gospel. Churches will never ever be multiplied, and they should not be multiplied on any scheme that is not the declaration of the gospel. We will not see churches planted from our church, from our fold, if we do not take our treasured task, not even just a responsibility, but this unbelievable gift that we've been giving, given in declaring and displaying the gospel. <clears throat> so you can see then, all of the rest of this falls on this being the means how we obtain the rest. So, it's important for us to think carefully about it. With all that being said, this is not just some words tacked onto the mission statement that lack importance. These are there because they're the anchor by which the rest will take place. So, we have to take them seriously. And in doing so, let's pray. God, you're very good to us. You're very kind to us. And we've already seen and felt it this morning. And in the fact that we're coming together in a church that wants to take the gospel seriously, with members who do take the gospel seriously, with, with worship and liturgy that takes the gospel seriously, with songs and confession and hymns and, and song singing and, and hearing one another's voices, proclaiming to one another the gospel. And now in a gospel-centered preaching, the, the time in the Word, in a book that makes much of the gospel, Lord, we've already experienced your kindness and how we've been able to interact with the gospel so far. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning would be an unapologetically gospel-drenched morning.
as we sit in awe of who you are, may it animate us, motivate us to get over ourselves, get over our comfort, and declare and display the gospel here and to the ends of the earth. May we be the type of people who are not satisfied unless we have the ability to declare and display the gospel. All for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Be with us this morning. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. We're going to be there all morning. We're not going to go anywhere else. 1 Peter 2, to be exact. While you're flipping there, let me just give you a massively quick overview, an unjustifiably quick overview of the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is, um, in my opinion, written by Peter. All right, now you might say that's a silly thing to say, but there's many scholars who don't agree. Um, here, this deal, though, I think the Bible is, uh, should be taken seriously, and when it says something, I think it's true. The first words are, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I think Peter wrote it. Not some scribe way later that liberal scholars would have you believe. I think this is a letter from Peter. He tells us it's written to those in Pontus and Galatia and Asia and Bithynia, and he says specifically it's to the elect exiles in those places. You see that word there? Those two words, elect exiles? I absolutely love this phrase, the elect exiles. And I think it's extremely important for us to get what Peter is meaning by the elect exiles in this particular sermon. Because what, what, what the reality about these elect exiles, this idea, is this is going to speak volumes about the culture and the people into which you are called to go declare and display the gospel. That, that's what it's going to do for you. So you have this task before you of you as a Christian have the responsibility and the treasure of declaring and displaying the gospel, but you're going to do it amongst the people in which you are elect exiles. So let's look at these two words. First, the word elect. <clears throat> Peter knows that he is writing to a chosen people. His audience is those whom God has chosen before the foundations of the world that we just sang about. Those whom God has redeemed to himself. His audience is the elect. They are chosen. They belong to God. They are the elect. As you, if you are in Christ, you are the elect, the chosen of God. Those who were not His people and are now by His grace His people. The chosen. Okay? That's very good news. For those who feel unwanted, listen. You've been chosen by the only one who matters if He chooses you. Alright, but not only are you elect, you're an exile. Right? And these two words seem to create a paradox, right? Not a contradiction, just a paradox. They don't seem to go together. If you're chosen and you've been made gods and he, you weren't his people, but by his grace you now are his people, how, do you, how are you now in exile? Which exile is those who don't have a home. But those who are foreigners, who are wandering. First Peter is going to keep calling them strangers and sojourners. Aliens is what the kind of language that he'll use to describe the exiles. So if you're elect, how are you in exile? Does that make sense? You see the tension there? And it's a beautiful tension because what's happening is, is we realize that we are God's chosen people, right? Selected before the foundations of the world. There's infinite amount of grace there, right? He doesn't select you because you're awesome and you have your stuff together. He's, he's, he picks you because you, he's gracious and good and kind and loving. The elect aren't the elect because they're awesome and pretty. The elect are the elect because God is good and gracious. But we're exiles still. We're not home here. We're not at home. And Sam even brought that up in the confession time. I think that's amazing that that, that we are exiles, right? That's why you probably feel some kind of 
uh, fixed, unsatisfied longing in your soul if you're a Christian. Things aren't right. Right now, in our world, I don't have to do anything to prove, you, to prove that to you. Turn on the news. Things aren't right. We are not at home. We're not at rest yet. We are salvifically, but in the ultimate supreme way, we're not totally at rest yet. We're exiles here. Listen, that, that is a major statement. We're exiles. And this is, this, this is a side note, not in my notes. You're about to get this for free. Brandon and I have been working tirelessly to write community group leadership and host training. <clears throat> and this point is very important in community because think about this. You, <clears throat> when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're just in the culture, when you're in a store, you are not at home. You're a foreigner there. You're in exile. <clears throat> and what happens at group when we come together in one another's living rooms and basements is a bunch of exiles who are exhausted from the fact that they're foreigners and probably treated as so get to come together and be at home, kind of, with one another. As a taste of heaven, we will no longer be exiles anymore. We will actually be home. We get to be with one another who are actual citizens of the same family. And for a moment in community group, we're not exiles. We're together. That's beautiful. So we're exiles in this world. So what does that say about declaring and displaying the gospel? Listen, it's not an easy job. It is not going to be. You should not expect... The, the, the Petrine model of you go and preach some very harsh words and then 3,000 people get saved. That's crazy Holy Spirit work. Probably not going to be your story. It's going to be difficult because you're doing it in a land in which you are a foreigner. People will not just listen to you. And, and hear me. This is important for a church of young uh, 20s and 30-somethings. They're not going to listen to you because you're cool. They're not going to listen to you because of the music you listen to or the music you don't listen to. They're not going to listen to you because of the type of clothes you wear. They're not going to listen to you because you're in exile. For anyone to listen to your news, right, which to most smells like death, the only way they're going to listen to that is if the grace of God in a miraculous way works. We're exiles here. We're not at home. But... We can rest knowing that we will be one day, and we're chosen in the meantime. All right. So then he addresses these elect exiles in the, in the chapters 1 and the beginning of 2 before we get to our passage. And he, he just riddles this book with imperatives just over and over. He is deeply concerned about their holiness. He wants them to, if you actually are elect exiles, make sure you live right so they can see the foreigners that you live amongst. They can see the way you live. He says, these are just some of the imperatives that are in the book. Prepare your minds for action. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Be holy. Love one another earnestly. Put away malice. Put away deceit. Put away hypocrisy. Put away envy and put away all slander. Those are just some of the imperatives that are in the book of 1 Peter. And then when we get to our passage, what he's going to do is he's going to juxtapose those who, who don't live according to the word of God to those who are truly elect exiles, okay? All right, so now we've set the scene. We're going to jump into our passage. 1 Peter 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. 1 Peter 9 doesn't exist. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. First Peter. All right, so let me point out something really quickly. We're going to spend most of our time in the first paragraph. The second paragraph I'm going to go over very quickly. But in the first paragraph, just notice this. Verse 9 alone, we have something very important, okay? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, okay? That is all positional propositions. Do you know what I mean by that? Proposition is just a statement of truth. These are positional. They're talking about your position before God. Right? You are chosen, royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, and now you're a people for his own possession. That's where you stand if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian. All right? And then we get to an imperative, a practice, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness. And this order is extremely important. Our position will come before our practice, always in the Christian life, always. We work because we've been loved. We don't work for love. We pursue holiness because we've been made holy, you see. Position always becomes before practice. And this really matters in terms of, of just animation and passion. Right? If you get, just hear me, if you get the gospel and you think about just the depths that is there, which you're never going to plumb the depths of the gospel. But if even if you have the, enough just wisdom and grace in your life to attempt to do so, and you start to think about things like the atonement, the fact that a perfect, infinite God makes himself tangible and comes in flesh and he lives a perfect life and he dies and he gets murdered on a tree for your behalf. Who are you? And you start to think about imputed righteousness, the doctrine of imputed righteousness, which says that you, listen, you, in the nicest way I can say this, you're a wicked, miserable sinner. Like, unbelievably more dirty than you think you are. And yet, even while that's true, Jesus came in the flesh and lived perfection. And instead of taking the reward for his perfection, and instead of you taking the, the punishment for your dirtiness, you swap places, and you get the reward for his perfection, and he gets the punishment for your dirtiness. Like, when you start to feel where you are positionally in the gospel, you can't help but to proclaim. Like, it just comes out of you. Like an overflowing cup, like, like, a, like a fire in my bones that I can't help but to share. Position leads to practice. We're in the gospel, therefore we proclaim the gospel. We're in Jesus, and so we proclaim Jesus. We've been redeemed, so we proclaim redemption. You feel it? This is important for us to see in the passage. Let's keep going. <clears throat> Let's start in our passage, actually. But you are a chosen race. Beautiful. There's a lot already there. <laughs> you are a chosen race. He starts with the fact, just like these elect exiles... Right, that, that God has chosen us. And we see from the testimony of the rest of Scripture that He chooses us be, because He is gracious, just like I said. His grace, in His grace, He has chosen you, and there's nothing about your goodness or awesome that helped Him make that decision. He did it because He's gracious. So then, just, just, it's impossible, even in a single sermon, to, get, to, to plumb the depths of this, these two words, that, that you are a chosen people. You're chosen, all right? Then he goes on. You're a royal priesthood. 
This is extremely important clause about your identity. And, and listen, to Peter's Jewish original audiences, this would have been like a bomb going off in their mind. Right? Because he, he's talking to, to primarily Jews or, or Gentiles who are very familiar with the Jewish faith. And listen, for them to be called a royal priesthood is pretty crazy for them. Because you, if you know the Jewish system, you know that to, to be a priest is a very major deal. And what we're getting at with priesthood, in essence here, is the accessibility of God. Can you go to God? Right now, that you might say as a 21st century American Christian, well, of course I can. I could pray right now, and I'm going to him. But that is a blood-bought gift that we must not feel entitled to. It is. It's not some, just some, some, some measly little thing that you've been given your prayer life. It's not. The reality is, is for most Jews to get access to God. Think about this, right? Someone in the Old Testament touches the Ark of the Covenant. All they do is touch it, and they die because God is so holy. They die. Most of the time when you read the Old Testament, when there are these things called theophanies, when God speaks to people, when he shows up, most of them act as if they're dead, right? The angel shows up to Isaiah, and he says, Woe is me, I'm terrible. Not only am I terrible, but everyone around me is terrible. That's what he does. In John, in Revelation, he sees, he sees this, this image, and he falls down and, and acts as if he's a dead man. That's what the holiness of God will do to us. And in, in the Jewish system, listen, you're only getting access to God if you're going through a priest, on a, a particular priest, on a particular time frame, doing particular activities, then you're getting access to God. But not you. Yes, you. You, because of the work of Jesus Christ, are a royal priesthood. So that means at this current moment, you can go to God with your sin. So every Sunday when we come together as a Mayus church and we have time of confession, I hope that never becomes some kind of religious activity for you, that you just check off. I did confession with my church. But when we're doing that, in that moment, is a miracle happening. Honestly, we're experiencing a massive amount of grace. When we come together as a church and say, we're going to go to God in confession, we're practicing our royal priesthood. So you, you've been made a royal priest. Your ability to pray, your ability to confess, your ability to go to God as if he really is a father and not just a judge, like Sam said, is a blood-bought gift. And especially, listen, I think it's okay to preach against false doctrine. And this is especially true in the wake of the fact that we're in a city and in a state that is dominated by Catholicism. Right? We don't have to go to a confession booth to go to the, to, to the Father. We don't need some priest to guide us in doing so, like the Catholic Church would have you believe. We don't need that. We have the supreme mediator of mediators in Jesus Christ, who at all times is mediating on our behalf, and therefore we come alongside him because of his work and go straight to the Father. And listen, we don't have to go to the Father in some kind of timid, is he going to smite me today, or will he be kind to me today way. We don't have to do that. You, you are not the unwanted stepchild in the economy of salvation. You've been given access, and with boldness, you can come. You can run to him like a father. Not a judge. You can go to him. Even when you're broken. Even when things are all right. Even when things are not even close to being all right. You can go. So go. It's a blood-bought gift. Then he says, you're a holy nation. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. This is important because I just said, everything I just said wouldn't be true if this was true. The Father, due to his supreme holiness, can't be in the company of the wicked. 
Yet because of our union with Christ, our wickedness is replaced by utter perfection that belongs to Christ and is now ours. Therefore, we have unfettered access to God. Because we're holy, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done, we can go to Him. And then he says this last thing, which I think is absolutely beautiful. You are a people for His own possession. And when you think about the grand narrative of the Bible, this should strike you as almost peculiar. Because you know yourself, and I know myself. I know how wicked I'm capable of being. I know how how wicked I'm capable of wanting to be. Yet, in all of my wickedness, and all of my rebellion against God, and all of my attempts to run very, very, very far away from Him, like the hound of heaven He is, He got me. And He made me His own possession. And you, with all of your baggage, and with your ups and your downs, and everything good that you've done, everything bad that you've done, and, and whatever is in your past, if you're in Christ, He's got you. And you're made His own possession. If you know the wickedness that's actually in your heart, you'll see the wonder and beauty in this clause. Let's keep going. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So hear this. He chose us because of his grace. He gave us access to him so that we can run to him with all of our desires and needs. He washed us. He made us holy. He turned broken people into complete children. And now we are his own possession. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is your position in Christ. Chosen, a royal priest, holy, and now you belong to him. When you get to start to feel for how big of a deal these things are, that's when that that position to practice thing just comes over you, and you just have to tell somebody. You have to remind yourself, or remind others, or tell those who've never heard it about the position that you've been given in grace, in Christ. So then we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Our position will always lead to practice. Because you've been redeemed, we proclaim the excellencies of redemption. Because we've been saved, we proclaim the excellencies of salvation. Because we've experienced grace and have been renewed, we proclaim the excellencies of His renewing grace. We proclaim His excellencies. Verse 9. And now let me, let me just point out just two quick things about this when it comes to excellencies. Because it says that's what we're proclaiming. One, we're proclaiming His excellencies. Right, so that means the Christian has no posture of self-boasting. None. None. Like, like You probably get it. No, not probably. You get it every single week here. You hear someone say, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. And somehow you keep coming back. But listen, we realize that when we contrast who we were and what we deserved compared to what we've been given and who we've become, it's all the more beautiful. And so we'll continue to tell you, you're worse than you could ever imagine. And we'll continue to tell you that Jesus is bigger and more gracious than you could ever fathom. We're going to keep saying that. And because of that reality, there's nothing within us to boast about. The Christian is not proclaiming his own excellencies. The Christian isn't saying, look, I killed this sin in my life. I've done it. I'm wonderful. The Christian isn't saying, look, I haven't missed a day of church in like 30 years. I'm wonderful. No, the Christian has no excellency to boast in outside of the merits of his high priest, King Jesus. We proclaim his excellencies. And secondly, because we're proclaiming his excellencies, that's, that's the message 
of our, of, uh, that, that, that's the content of our message, His excellencies, we as Christians will never exhaust our proclamation, ever. You can spend the rest of your days proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ, and you will not run out of excellencies to proclaim. You will not. He is that supremely and infinitely good. So we proclaim His excellencies. And look what the last couple of verses say in this paragraph. We proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but we've been made God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you became His people and you've received mercy. You know how you became His people? It's because while you were acting, not acting like His people, and in fact, while you were running very, very far away from Him, He made you His. While you were at your worst, He left the right hand of God where He could have been in complete satisfaction, didn't need a thing, He didn't come after you because He, was, he needed some kind of love that you had to offer. No, while you were at your worst and He was completely content where He was, He became flesh on your behalf. And He made you His. You know how you were brought out of darkness? It is because though you were sprinting into the darkness, he pursued you and and brought you into the light by being murdered on a cross on your behalf. This is the gospel. You've been made his people by his blood. You've been brought into the darkness by his blood. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the things that have made you a people and brought into light. So Christ came from the right hand of God. He lived a perfect life that you should have lived. And instead of getting the reward, he was crucified and died a death that you should have died. So that you, a people who didn't have a God and could have, could and would have been continued to walk into darkness for the rest of their life, came into gospel life. This is the message that our church is built off of. This is the gospel. It's why we do what we do. It's why we do everything that we do. It's why we spend money on the things we spend money on. It's why we're located in the place we're located. It's why we write the sermons that we write. It's why we preach the books that we preach. It's why we allow the members who come in to come in. It's why we do everything that we do. Is this message, the gospel. Because hear me very clearly. Our programs, our groups, our communities, our events, or whatever, will not ultimately save anybody. They won't. But our gospel will. Our gospel will. We'll never be an events-driven church. We'll never be a program-driven church. We will be a gospel-driven church. It's all that we have to offer as a church. And so, we proclaim it. Getting to the declare and display portion, we must declare the gospel. We must declare the gospel. If it's true that it's all that we have, it must be a message declared. And hear me, not just in some ambiguous type, you should, you, you should like Jesus. Man, he is really laying on it. You, you, should, you, should, you should like Jesus. You should come to church. Not in some kind of ambiguous way, but in, in explicit terms. There is a bloody cross. There is a risen Savior. In specific terms, we must tell our neighbors. We must proclaim the gospel. And hear me, we must proclaim it to ourselves. That there must be in your life some kind of rhythm in which you are reminding yourself of the gospel. Because if you are anything like me, you are in desperate need to be reminded of the gospel. Listen, I am prone to listen to the deceiver when he tells me, see, 
I told you you weren't a Christian. I'm prone to listen to that. I'm prone to despair when I look over the course of my life and think, look at what I've done. The evidence doesn't seem to stack up in my favor. I'm prone to despair when I think about how good God is and how wicked I am. I'm prone to despair in all these things. Or I'm prone to be puffed up in them when for a second I do something right. And in so doing, whether it's in my despair or my pride, I'm in desperate need of the gospel. And there must be, listen, you have to, as a Christian, find rhythms in your life in which you are reminding yourself the gospel over and over. Your bloodstream needs injections of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you must get it. So when we declare the gospel, we declare the gospel to ourselves. Secondly, we, we must be a people who are declaring the gospel to other fellow Christians. Right? That might seem contrary to what you're thinking because the gospel is what saves sinners and makes them saints in the first place. So why are we telling people who already believe in the gospel the gospel? Well, just like I need a reminder of the gospel, so do you. This is why we do community groups, guys. This is it. This is why we take community groups so seriously that we say, if you're going to be a member of our church, you have to be in one. We, we don't believe that, that the Christian life is a life meant to be lived in isolation alone. But the Christian life is meant to be along redeemed brothers and sisters who have a Jesus that we need to hear about every single week. This is why we do groups, to remind ourselves of the gospel, to declare the gospel. And then we must preach the gospel and declare the gospel to the lost. We must. Make no mistake, there is no salvation in any other name but Jesus Christ. And so hear me, your lost friends will remain lost unless you tell them about Jesus Christ. There is no salvation anywhere else. Jesus must be declared. We'll get to what it means in just a second, what it means to display the gospel. But we put declaring the gospel first for a reason. We want the gospel vocally declared. Like you, you've heard that, that junk that Hedger even brought up last week, you know, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. It's, oh my word, that is so garbage. I once had a friend tell me in the same vein, he said, hey, give me your phone number and when necessary, use digits. That's how stupid of a saying that is. Honestly, it gets me like infuriated when I, and it's always said in like good faith, like, hey man, like I know that you're like, you're preaching and stuff, but you need to like live the gospel and preach the gospel always, yes. But don't use your words, do it with your actions. That's bogus. People get saved from hearing the gospel. Preach the gospel always, and because it's always necessary, use words. All the time. And people are saved because they hear Romans 10. The gospel. People are not going to get saved because you open a door for an old lady. That's just not going to happen. People aren't going to get saved because your, your life looks good. People aren't going to get saved even because you treat your wife right or treat your husband right. People aren't going to get saved from any of those things. They might validate your proclamation, but they will not save a soul. We must declare ver verbally, vocally, in an authoritative, proclamative way Declare the gospel. So we declare the gospel to non-believers. And this is in the DNA of Emmaus Church. We will be, without fail, without apology, a church that is 
got a laser-like focus on the declaration of the gospel to the lost here and to the ends of the earth. And so I know when I start talking about declaring the gospel to non-believers, a couple of objections arise in your mind because they arise in my mind too. So just a couple that you might be thinking. I don't know how. That's the first one. Ronnie, I want to declare the gospel to non-believers. I want to tell my non-believing friends and families about the gospel, but I don't know how. Okay, well, hear this. First of all, your non-believing friends and family will not get saved because of some dynamic presentation of the gospel that you give. They will get saved because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has an infinite amount of power. They will not get saved because you formulated the gospel presentation right. They will not get saved because you handed them the right track. They will get saved because Jesus is kind and gracious in turning sinners into saints. So, the burden is not on you, Christian. The burden is on, your, is on your Savior, and trust me, He can take it. Secondly, you have a miraculous story. You say, you don't really know my story. I say, I don't need to. If you're in Jesus Christ, you have a miraculous story of a dead man or a dead woman being turned into an alive man or an alive woman. If you're in Christ, you are a walking, breathing miracle of a dead man turned to life. Tell that story. Tell them that story. You don't need a seminary education to be able to declare the gospel to the lost. You don't need it. You need a testimony that says, I was once in darkness and now I'm in light. I was once dead and now I'm alive. And it wasn't because I was awesome or pretty or had my stuff together. It's because Jesus is good and kind to me. You have what it takes to declare the gospel. And you also have the Holy Spirit who will guide you in doing so. Second, you might say, sharing the gospel feels a bit awkward. I'm not really into that. I haven't really found my niche. It doesn't really feel organic or whatnot. Listen, get over yourself. I'm just going to say that bluntly. Just do it. (laughs) Share the gospel. The news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is too important to not be shared because you feel awkward. It is too vital to not be shared because you want it to happen in a more organic style. Share the gospel. The third one might be, I'm not close enough with any non-believers in my life to share. It's hard for me to be around to non-believers, right? A lot of you go to a Christian school. A lot of you work in Christian environments. Some of you are, can I dare say, lucky enough to not to. But for some of you, it's hard to be around non-believers. Again, very frankly, and as nice as I can, change that. Move somewhere else. Listen, getting a different job for the sake of the gospel is an honorable reason to get a different job. It is. Living somewhere else isn't, for the sake of the gospel is an honorable reason to live somewhere else. Those are on, like you have the ability, right, as a freedom-living American, you can change the circumstances in which you can put yourself around non-believers. And hear me, the proclamation of the gospel to the lost is worth changing a few circumstances within your life. It is. It's worth it. Right? You say, okay, the time period of my life doesn't really allow me to do that. Well, then shop where you shop for the sake of the gospel. Get your hair cut where you get your hair cut for the sake of the gospel. Make friends and start shaking hands and introducing yourself for the sake of the gospel. The salvation of the lost is worth you changing a few things or feeling a bit uncomfortable or shopping somewhere different or eating somewhere different or whatever it is. Just proclaim the gospel. 
Listen, hear me. If, if you need a selfish reason to do it, your faith will never feel as more on fire and, and zealous and passionate as, as it is when you're sharing the gospel with a non-believer and you're starting to see light bulbs turn on. When that happens, I'll tell you, it is, it is addicting. Do it. I'm begging you, do it. And hear this. This, like, this message of us Share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. It's not going to stop for at least 12 more weeks after this sermon. We're, we're doing the book of Philippians next on purpose because we want this semester to be about seeing lost people saved. So this is, this is the tone, this is the message that you're going to get for the next 12 weeks. It's going to get convicting eventually. Share the gospel. Okay, now that you're all ready to share. Display quickly. My timer is ticking. Let me read this last paragraph because this is, this is what is fascinating to me. When, when you look into the scriptures, you see this. Proper gospel thinking will always lead to proper gospel living. And we see that. We've just talked about proper gospel living, right? We're now a holy people. We, we are now royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race, and we're his own possession. That's gospel thinking. And now we proclaim the mysteries of him who calls out of light. And so now we're going to get the, the text just goes naturally into gospel displaying. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, right? That's, that's who you are. You're not at home here. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles. That's just anyone who's a non-Jew, basically. You, you, could, you could very well, in this context, not in every context, but you could very well read this context as non-believers for that word. To keep your, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when, you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Proper gospel thinking will lead to proper gospel living. We believe, Adamaeus, that's not only important to declare the gospel, but also to display it. A person who has been just totally wrecked in the best way possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to have a gospel-shaped life. They're going to. They will bend their lives in the shape of the gospel. Their lives and all that they do will, will, be, will be shaped by this news. What it means to display the gospel then is to live in a way that validates our proclamation. Right. So what I mean by that is when you, when you do finally get the courage to proclaim the gospel, it would be a major shame if someone said, really? Like you don't live even remotely close to what you're talking about. Like you're not even, it's not that like you kind of mess up every once in a while. You're not even in the same ballpark as like, or same universe is what you're talking about with this Jesus and gospel thing. Right, so, so it validates our proclamation of the gospel and extends a type of self-sacrificing and others-centered love that people can see visually the narrative of the gospel. Let me read that again. What it means to display the gospel then is to live in a way that validates your proclamation of the gospel and extends a self-sacrificing and others-centered love that, we, that will show and they can see a narrative of the gospel. So let me give you a major one. We, we, we love to hear and encourage, listen, honestly, we encourage all of our families to, to go through something like adoption, to, to adopt someone into your family. Because theological adoption is a great reason to do civil adoption. You, who once didn't have a family, are now grafted into God's family. Theological adoption. And in civil adoption, can you think of a better way to, to display the gospel to those who are watching? Self-sacrificing and loving others. We want our church to be a church known for families who are adopting. Or, or how about this? 
Just, just, we desire to see families of Emmaus serve the community in a way in which they can display the gospel. For we, we know that, that sofas and movies provide much entertainment, but since Jesus left His comfort at the right hand of God, we better be able to leave our comfort and pursue the good of others. This is a gospel-bent life. It's shaped by the gospel. Displaying the gospel comes in many forms, but what it boils down to is this, counting others as more than yourself and living in a way that pictures and mirrors the fact that Jesus left his place to come for you. So we display the gospel. This should be something that is in our conscientious thinking about Christians. How can I live my life that others may see the gospel visually and that will lead to me being able to tell them the gospel verbally? My time, my energy, my money, whatever it may be, how can I display the gospel with all that I have? So so let let me just end with this. It is no exaggeration whatsoever, honestly, to say that the gospel is all that we have. Or we sing that song all the time. It's one of my favorites that we sing. The gospel is all I have. The gospel is all I have. And it's not just a cute song that we sing. It's the anthem of our lives. It's the banner that we're waving as this church. It's the flag that we're flying. It's our only message. The gospel is all that we have. And hear me, that's extraordinary news because the gospel is all that you will ever, ever need. So we must declare and display. We must proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We must proclaim the one who made us his people. We must proclaim the one who made us a chosen race. We must proclaim the one who made us a royal priesthood. Our position will lead to practice. And so we declare and display the gospel so that God will be glorified and so that churches will be multiplied. Let's pray. God, you're good. And the reality is, is for a message like this, there, there's desperate need in the room. There, there's need in, in those who haven't experienced what I'm talking about, who haven't been made a royal priesthood, who haven't been made your own possession. If there's any in the room who are there, would you save them? There's any in the room who wouldn't come to you as a father but feel you more as a judge. Would you become a father to them today? And would you, would you allow them to put their trust in you? And for those of us who have, Lord, there is still a desperate neediness. We're needy. We're not ashamed of that. We know when we boast in our weakness, what we're actually doing is boasting in your strength. So we need you. We want to be a church marked by gospel proclamation, but we need you to do so. So I pray, I pray for a few things. I pray for for those who call Emmaus home. I pray that you would convict us, deeply convict us for our complacency in not sharing the gospel. I pray that you would encourage us 
encourage us in our position in the gospel so much that it leads to a proclamation of the gospel and encourage us that it's not about how we, how we dynamically deliver the gospel that people are going to be saved, but it's by your goodness. Encourage us to go out and do so. And then, Father, lead us. Lead us to the lost. Lead us to the broken. Lead us to those who, who, who have deep questions. Lead us to those who, who seemingly hate you. Lead us to those who are running into the darkness. Lead us there. Help our lives be lived there. So convict us, encourage us, and lead us to declare and display the gospel. And Lord, we pray more than any of those things, we pray that in the declaration and in the displaying of the gospel, that that the word will not be turned back void like you promised. And this year, Emmaus Church will see people saved and baptized and live in a way that glorifies you. That's what we want. Lord, I want this year to be on Smithville Lakes Banks, worshiping and laughing and having fun because you have brought sinners into your fold through the people of Emmaus, and they're declaring and displaying the gospel. Would you be glorified in all that we say and do? God, I pray even in advance for the series on the book of Philippians. Would you set our hearts ablaze to see your name proclaimed? Would the reality that those who don't worship you are still worshiping false idols be enough for us to say we cannot stomach the thought of millions and billions of people worshiping false idols rather than the true God? We need you in our declaring and in our displaying of the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.